Welcome to episode nine of the Swear Jar podcast. My name is John Brooks. I'm a stand-up comedian out of Adelaide in South Australia. Thanks for joining me. Uh, We're taping this on Friday, November 8th in 2019, just for the record. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to either download or or stream and listen. I really appreciate it. Uh, In particular, a big shout out to the couple of people who've reached out to me this week, to Justin, who listens in between shifts in the mining camps. Uh, Hopefully this is enough to keep you from going full wake in fright and doing something horrible to a kangaroo. Uh, And very few people actually realise that that movie is a documentary, if you've ever lived in the bush. Uh, and a special shout out to uh, Nat in Mount Gambia, who listens while she's at the doctor's surgery. So it's, uh, it's good to know that we can distract you from the sounds and smells and the horrors of South Australia's regional health system. We've got a juicy one for you this week because we're talking journalism. It's my old hustle from back in the day before comedy. And my guest is one of the best working in the business. He's a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in The Guardian and The Saturday Paper, but he's perhaps best known for his best-selling books that he's brought out. He's got three books, The Death of Holden, which is about the closure of the Australian car industry, Rogue Nation, which is uh, dispatches on the rise of outsider politics in Australia, and most recently, Boom and Bust, which looks at the role of the mining industry in Australia's economy. Welcome to my lounge room, Mr. Royce Kermelovs. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, good. No, it's nice to have you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. For, thank you for bringing me over. It's uh, it's 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 fun. As a freelance journalist, I realise that your time is money, so I'm going to waste it. Well, I, I'm also free to waste my time as I please. So you know, <laughs> I'm I'm perfectly good about wasting my own time. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Cool. So it's, it's an awfully interesting introduction you gave me there. I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm used to people just saying, hey, you, or, you know, chasing <laughs> me off their property. <laughs> have you have you actually been chased off someone's property before? <sighs> no, but I've been threatened yeah. couple, a couple of times. Really? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, I've had instances of, I've been in cars with people and guys have lent over the de- of the, the center console of the car and said, look, mate, I respect you. Just don't fuck with me. Right. And like other times it was covering a, uh, uh, when, when Reclaim Australia was a thing, people were marching yeah. around angry about something. I don't know. I can't yeah. remember. lost in the distant time. Yeah. Um, but the UPF turned up to a, a protest in Perth where I happened to be there covering it. And uh, I remember this. Yeah. And I, the, the entire day, it was like really blindingly hot in the middle of Perth full, you know, full times. And I was getting uh, just uh, the whole, like, because they, ha- they had their own uh, de- like de facto security force, like volunteer yeah. security guards that would like screen people for being outsiders and stuff. Or, and they'd ask for people's ID and stuff, wouldn't they? Yeah, and they kept asking for my media ID. And every, the whole day they were grabbing me by the shoulder, not just like a tap on the shoulder, just like a, like like grabbing me, saying "Hey, you." And eventually got to the point where I literally just turned around and said "Fuck off," because like I got so sick of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that and that day ended with me doing a story on just I was I was standing at the back of this protest and there was like the, the you know, flags waving, these incredibly angry speeches being given, hmm. and this like 21, 22 year old Muslim woman just walks up to the back of the group, and she's wearing you know she's wearing a hijab, and she was just curious. She wanted to know why people hated her religion. Yeah, and of all the people she got in all the country, she got like the core leadership of the UPF, Blair Cottrell, <laughs> and friends when he was still kicking, um, and then you know I and I was like, this is gonna get weird so i stood like within like two, two meters of them trying to listen to this guy from the upf lecture her and how like her god was you know a pedophile and all this awful stuff yeah and she was very patient and kind and then you know and then i walked away and then i, t- I spoke to her and asked her about her story and what was going on and she goes yeah so you know when i was six the taliban tried to kill me for going to school wow Okay, but a guy from Frankston who has a shirt that he bought from the Queen Victoria Markets that was probably printed in China knows more about Islam than her. And was quite happy to lecture on it for like ages, you yeah. know. Yeah. And she told me this wonderful story about how she like, 
you know, when she, because she's a Hazara, which is a very persecuted ethnic minority there. Yeah. And she was, and she was in some, you know, small village and kind of, I can't remember which region it is now. Um, but she just, it would, like the Taliban took over a village one day and she, and they said, you, all right, girls can't go to school. And she said, well, screw you. Yeah. I'm going to go anyway, dressed as a boy, went to class and all the boys knew what was going on and they were giggling and stuff. And the teacher had no idea. Wow. And then, the, and then the teacher, you know, realized what was going on. They, after that, they held, they held the worst you know, ever parent teacher conference. And uh, the Taliban said, yeah, she's either got to leave or we're going to kill you. Wow. And that was and that was how she came. That was how her family eventually came to Australia. That was the impetus that started this process. Yeah. And so I said, yeah, and so she was talking to these guys, and she's like, "These guys are no different to the Taliban. No, not at all. Basically the same." Wow. Yeah. And and somehow she's a Q jumper. Yeah, and some, some yeah, and even better, like, these guys then took a photo of her, right? Because yeah. they, they used it for propaganda. It was quite a famous uh, confrontation too, because yeah. it made the media. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I did the story for the BBC, so it went around the world. Yeah, and so like they stood behind her and did like the bunny ears. What? And like they, Korean bunny ears? Yeah, like, like here behind her, like just teasing her and stuff. And I'm like, what this the is fuck. It's so it was so weird. So and then after two days later, she starts getting phone calls because they posted it all across their social media, oh. saying we educated this Muslim woman. And all her, all, everyone she knows is like, what are you doing hanging out with a pack of Nazis? Yeah. Um, and so, so I'm like, all right. I went away and did the story and it was about that. And so I kind of corrected the records, so to speak. Yeah. And from then on, everyone understood what happened and that these guys were lying. And then suddenly like, you know, and so that's, you know, and, and for, for, for me at least, you know, in, that, in the kind of reporting I do, that was something really meaningful, right? Because you actually help someone with your reporting. Yeah. And that story went around the world. It was translated into like, you know, like Russian, Italian, all the languages. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You know, what was the question? <laughs> I can't remember, but uh, it, it kind of brings me back to the first thought I really had because my experience with journalism is you're either the kind of person who goes out and you're very procedural and you hunt for news and that kind of stuff and you pour through the reports and you develop contacts or more like me when I was a journalist, shit just seems to happen when you're there or around you. Do you find that as a thing? Just follows you around, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, I think the, the best in the business uh, either, you know, fall into either one or, you know, one or either category or both. Yeah. And I've had a very good, I, you know, I can be, I've been very lucky when stuff just happens when I'm around. Yeah. Because it's kind of been like a historical family trait for my, for my people is that they've never really done anything famous, but they've always been standing in the background when famous stuff goes on. Like they turn up for the battle like a couple of days late. There, there's someone signing a treaty. Someone's, you know, and they're standing in the background looking off camera, wondering what that <laughs> noise is. Um, you know, so you know, I, I guess my whole, what, what, you know, that that benefits me with journalism. I'm essentially monetizing that trait to be in the right place at the right time, but not actually involved. Yeah. But then, you know, I guess over the last few uh, months, those birds are really uh, they're super <laughs> loud, man. Yeah. So the one in. Um, but so yeah, yeah. I've been trying to you know develop more of that procedural, that careful and investigative stuff because I mean, I think that's also I think those are skills you can learn. Hmm. Um, you know, it helps to be to, to attract kind of weird stuff, but like, yeah. and you've probably got a few war stories that are. Well, I I never rose the ranks of journalism really. I was I was a bush journo for three or four years straight out of university, mm. which was you know everyone at university were like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving to go work in this remote mining town? It's like because there's no jobs. That's why I'm fucking going. But that was also how it was done, right? Like so. When you the whole idea of coming up was to go out region, you know, yeah. regions and you know, improve yourself to mm. like learn learn a few skills, learn how to talk to people, and not just hang out in the in the cities in the press gallery, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and be fed essentially PR, yeah, and yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and then to get out of your comfort zone as well, because like there's no point like talking about stuff if you've got no life experience. Like exactly, and moving to a town that you know you've you've got absolutely no connection to, that's got a lot of problems uh, and a very small newsroom that's also going through the first stages of rationalisation that we're now seeing now in Australia, where they're just you know they call it rationalisation, that slash and burn cancer economics essentially. Well, and this is kind of goes to I mean because you did the, you know, you've done the documentary on the hold and stuff and yeah. I was doing the book, right? So like we talk about, you know, losing the factories and what that means and all that kind of deindustrialization, and, you know, and, yeah. and because it's obvious, right? It's clear, it's clearly sympathetic. But the, I mean, I would argue one of the first industries to experience it was the news business, yeah. you know? And it's just that, uh, yeah, because and all that stuff, that cancerous, just slashing of the newsroom budgets, the loss of people yeah. and the loss of that knowledge and that, something you know yeah uh, which is which yeah, which is continuing they <clears throat> pardon me this cup of tea is really really sticking <laughs> it's to a the, really aggressive cup of it tea. is yeah yeah it's, it's all the vodka i put in it <laughs> so when i was there in the early 2000s so i was i was working in newspapers in the bush from about 2002 to 2005 hmm. and they in those days were just slashing staff numbers and they put it down to shrinking advertising revenue due to the internet and I remember standing, like the internet was still pretty new then. And I remember standing there and like looking around, it's like there's no no one is backing out. Small towns were the exact opposite. Like they still mm. had that captive market, their little, they weren't rivers of gold, but they had their little creeks of gold for the local uh, you know, advertising and all that kind of stuff. They were just slashing numbers because they could, because they looked at, you know, what was the bare minimum number of staff they could have in there. Let's just get rid of all the other people. So... I rolled up to the newspaper I worked at in Port Augusta about four or five years before the first real round of job cuts went through. And they got rid of their full-time photographer. They had a second journalist who was working there and they got rid of that person. So I think, I think they, they trimmed it down to a newsroom of an editor and two journalists with no photographers because now apparently the technical skills had disappeared. They brought in digital cameras and all this kind of stuff. and You have to do it all yourself. And yeah, yeah, which is, you know, these days you see it with journalists who are like, you know, they're the iPhone generation of journalists who are like, you know, snapping pictures in the park. Like here in Adelaide just recently, um, they had that backpack full of uh, NOS canisters all over the ground. And, you know, I know, the, I know the reporter who took that photo just iPhone on the way to work and suddenly it's front page yeah. news for a couple of days where they're trying to do this stuff. Well, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, and there's, I mean, I ha had reason to look this up recently. Something mm. like a hundred papers have closed in like yeah. the last, I mean, however long. Let's just say five years, just for you know. And these are all regional papers, primarily. Yeah. But then you, like you said, you still get pockets of where this is thriving. Like recently, I went to the Riverland for this, you know, uh, residency I had to yeah. do, and like. That was that was really interesting because there's like several papers in like every single town in this one region. There's a thriving print culture. Yeah, and apparently uh, Weatherall actually turned up there for a press conference once. Yeah, and then suddenly all these reporters turned up, and he turns around and goes, "What is this? Where did you you, you guys have more than one paper here?" So he was confused by the fact that yeah. there were actually reporters at his press conference who were going to report what he said. Yeah, um, you know, and then but then also I mean like but then you still have that pressure of you know of you know where's the money coming from? Yeah. And that's corresponding, you know, corresponding uh, effect on your, your material that you're publishing, mm. and then you start, to, and so you start to see the news content fall away because it's also like news is hard, right? Like it requires you to investigate, it requires you to you know manage different kind of interest groups. Mm. You know, sometimes you're going to say something that pisses, pisses someone off, you know. So like that's what you're 
losing and and yeah and if you're just looking at it as a money making exercise you just you you know you just it's a race to the bottom in terms of publishing fluff absolutely and the interesting thing about those riverland papers that are still going they're all independently owned they're owned by small families who have maintained the minimum staffing levels to produce a decent product the ones that are all shutting down are the ones that were all bought up by fairfax mm. who who they i think they palmed them off to channel 9 when Channel 9 took over, and Channel 9 straight away just said, we have no interest in regional newspapers, yeah. and just sliced it off and well, why sent it they? to the side. Exactly. I mean, they're, t- they're, they're a commercial TV station, and like they're fundamentally interested in, that, in their real estate re- yeah, real estate revenue from domain and all, and all that yeah. sort of... Uh, and who needs the nightmare of you know, maintaining another 194 sites around Australia, each with its own little yeah. HR problem, and it only contributes, what, probably 500 grand a year to the company? It's an administrative struggle. Yeah, so these, well, I remember when this happened too because they brought in the digital cameras and they were like, you'll be fine. Like, we'll just send you out with these cameras and you'll be okay. And they gave us the first generation of Nikon Coolpix, mm. which I don't know if you remember these. They were like, like they held two AA batteries. They had the little e e e kind of zoom oh, my lens. My mum still has one. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, we're at the football trying to take photos with this. And I can remember like doing like little bits of placement and stuff at university and seeing what News Limited had access to and what Fairfax, the big company, had access to and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, we are taking the piss. And even then I'm like saying to the other people I work with, like if we are delivering this kind of product, they're not going to stay with us for long. And now you can say, I mean, I wasn't the only person saying this. I wasn't a genius. You didn't have to be a genius to see it. But now you look at these small town papers, they're down to one person who isn't trained. Often, Oftentimes they've come through... Because the, the, the media degrees aren't even there anymore. Like University of SA, where I did my journalism studies, which apparently was a prestigious journalism school. Fuck knows how. <laughs> Fuck, it was pathetic. Apparently that was a prestigious journalism school, though. You get out into the field, you're like, oh, I've learned nothing. Well, and it's, it's interesting you say that because I, I – it's uh, – so like the like the journalism program in USA is changing because they went through a period of rationalization. They don't even offer it anymore. No, they're still there, isn't it? No, it's a sub major now. Is it? Yeah. That's, so it's not a degree uh, anymore. I thought it was Adelaide because like because the because it was really interesting what happened there. So the head of the journalism program in USA defected to Adelaide and then ran journalism as a sub major of the arts. Yep thing yep but and i'm not sure i'm not certain that it's still at uni SA now i i want to believe it is because in 2008 or 9 i got in touch with them and said look i actually want to finish my degree because i wanted to i was thinking about going off and doing post-grad law mm-hmm. and they said to me oh why? you're gonna oh look I, I work in a law firm now and i know why i don't want to do it <laughs> <laughs> but at the time i was thinking well i need to diversify. what is wrong with you <laughs> yeah, i know or you know although that said a law degree does help for journalist to relate activities well, didn't, but- don't you have a law degree yeah, I feel, <laughs> I, I, look, I filled out the form wrong. That was literally how I got into it. Like, yeah. I, I got some really bad career advice in high school, and they said, oh, I rank your thing by preferences or whatever. And I'm like, all right, fine. And then all, all I wanted was the journalism degree. Yeah. And then they, yeah, and then somehow I wound up in like the law, journal, like the law journalism thing. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll do this for five years. Yeah. Um, I don't regret it, actually. I mean, yeah. I, I'm never going to use it as a lawyer, but I don't want to be a lawyer because, I mean, I have friends who work in that space and they're not, yeah. you know. They, uh, they have mixed feelings, but then it spend also, time with them now because they're going to die young. <laughs> Fuck, it's a hard work. It is, yeah. and they're, they're, they're workaholics as well. Yeah, but I mean, like for me, I guess where I grew up as well, having that degree was like was useful. You know, it taught me how to be yeah in the world. I was I had no clue. I would have walked in blind. You know, um, so I'm actually really glad I had that. Yeah, depth. Yeah. It's just getting back to the um, – the because this is my bugbear, man, like the, the rationalisation of country newspapers and the fact that they are now pretty much all going to collapse except for the family-owned ones. 
they still go like the maybe Wyala might stay open, maybe Port Lincoln. They've got enough of a critical mass, but smaller towns like Port Perry and Port Augusta, I wouldn't be surprised if they lose theirs pretty soon. And, you know, and the, the little limestone coast ones. And, and there's part of a, just a wider process as well. Like even me as a freelancer, like I shouldn't be working as a freelancer. Yeah. And, and the, you know, and it's, and this is why I have complicated thoughts about this, you know, that you of the way I work, right? Like, and I think we've discussed this before in the past, like at the same time, you're watching kind of regional newspapers kind of shudder. You're watching kind of this, this, the, the, the amount of money being used to spend on just basic material, even on like near metro, major metropolitan newspapers is thinning. You know, yeah. they're, they're thinning. The stuff you see in TV, right? It, it's, it's cheaper to put on reality, reality, reality TV, if I can say the words, yeah. than it is to actually produce something that's written and directed and you know, has guts to it, you know? Mm. Um, so like, this is a, a national process. And then at the same time you have like, you know, con- you know contract workers like me turn up as, you know, be freelancers. Yeah. And in some ways that's been good to carve out a niche and to kind of do the work that these institutions don't, don't either, either don't have the resources for, don't have the time for or, or miss because they're not on the ground anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I kind of step in. But then at the same time, it means that I'm also, yeah, I, there is a certain lack of security there. That means you have to be constantly aware of you know, you, you're doing more work, yeah. you know, than you would be at, if I was at that institution. You don't have the, that institutional backing, which make, which makes it harder to go after people who are, to be frank, sons of bitches. Like that's and that was the value of industrial news is that you have that ability to you know hold people to account. And then the newspaper, the you know even even television news provides that kind of cultural. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Unity. It provides the ability for ca- accountability. It provides, you know, it, it, at its most idealistic. Yeah. Um, and so by losing these, you're losing all of it. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, I've worked on both sides of the fence as you have. I've worked in journalism and in public relations, which is essentially the art of managing the interaction between you know various institutions and the media, or you know, and also being a point of contact. Yeah, pretty much. And I always, I always laughed having worked for News Limited, going to work in PR, and they're like they're complaining about having to deal with someone like me. And it's like you created me. Like if you didn't have your industrial, every single day is a deadline. It's got to be the most exciting possible angle. Let's just throw out all this other stuff that qualifies everything that we're saying. Like they complain about the fact that, uh, say, a journalist, the old days, you know, I'm talking 1960s, a press secretary would go out and have drinks with a journalist. You know, there'd be a real kind of backroom kind of stuff going on. Ministers would talk to journalists over the phone, all that kind of stuff. You just don't get that now. You've still got a few that'll ring up and actually... It depends. I mean. yeah. <laughs> There's still a few. Like, pe- people in government, generally speaking, won't do it. But if you're if you're the sort of person like, a, you know, a crossbench senator or something like that who has the ability to influence in the media, they'll often cultivate a much more personal uh, relationship with the journalist. Whereas, especially in the machinery of bureaucracy... They just have no time for a journalist. Uh, it's yeah. Well, it depends. Who, it depends who you get. I mean, like if you look at the. I mean, at least in the, in the federal sphere, when you see people leak to papers, it us, it's it's primarily done to punish a rival, or it's at a critical moment to like yeah. flush out opposition, right? So it's tactical. Yeah. And if they have their and these and a lot of senior federal politicians have their friends and various media outlets. Mm. It's just you know so like some people cultivate media relationships, mm. others. You know, again, are very risk averse because that's what we've created. We've created a deeply risk averse society. Yeah, I often, I often wonder about uh, the midwinter ball that you get, where journalists will frock up, politicians will frock up, they'll get together, and basically the doors close, the records off, 
and they all just get shit-faced together. Well, theoretically, I mean, in the recent years, you, you're seeing more like tweeting and reporting from what happens in the midwinter ball. And you know, yeah. to be honest with you, like, I mean, I'm of the opinion that's a good thing, to be honest. I, I, think, I think that you know, there should be a, a level of candor between the media and those in power. But at the same time, then you've got those ones who just cozy up and will probably ignore a secret because they don't want to burn you know, a later... See, I, and this is, and so it's it, it's complicated. So I mean, I've got friends who I've got, I've got your friends who work in the press gallery, and like, mm. and I think, and I mean, the problems with campaign journalism and that kind of reporting on politics have been known since Hunter S. Thompson was writing this back in the seventies. He wrote a classic book that's taught in American journalism schools called Boys in the Bus, mm-hmm. and it was, and he coined, and no, it, was, it wasn't him. Sorry, it was a guy he was mentoring. Yeah, that's, that's right. Sorry. Um, and so the guy who was mentoring at the time who was working for Rolling Stone wrote about the press on the campaign bus yeah. and he coined the phrase pack journalism and he talked about the close, you know, the close relationship between journalists and people in power and how you know you can't help it at some, you know, at some point and the pr- time pressures these reporters are under make mm. it like you know incredibly like it's, it's, it's impossible to do anything else yeah. everything from the you know the the, the, the newswire guys who, who are the ones who form the you know the backbone of the story that everyone else you know spins off live on, yeah. in their own copy um, and that's been going on since the 70s I mean, and that again was a different world because I mean, you had some very male-dominated, mm. and yeah, you know, and even then, that relationship between media and press was very cultivated, and like that hasn't changed. You know, in some ways, it's you know, in some ways, you know, social media has made that more immediate. TV changed politics because you know, you know, you have to be able to talk to television cameras. You can't just run a campaign based on print. So like that kind of happened, but and so these problems in a way aren't new. Yeah. But then I, th- but then that. But when you're faced with, you know, again, that, to go back to that decline in print, you know, in, in, in newspapers and media, that loss of that institutional knowledge and talent and the resources and the capacity to go back and balance that highly managed stuff with, you know, the kind of like intrepid out there talking to people stuff, mm. the kind of stuff that I actually, that I, I try to do for better or worse, yeah. um, you know, it becomes much harder for, you know, these organizations to do that. And so you wind up, you know, defaulting to the you know, path of least resistance. And I mean, and my observation of the media, te- I mean, if you, it tends to be that it tends to operate like Zoolander, you know, where you got, you got the face and body boys and you got David Duchovny out the back. You know, so you got like, and so it kind of breaks down into that cultural um, bubble. That's not to say people are doing good work because like anything, there are people who are willing to go the extra mile and people are not. Yeah. So, but it's, but on the whole, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's, there's a whole lot of competing pressures here that end up meaning that we undermine, you know, just our basic access to information. Yeah, and this is compounded again by the rise of twenty four hour you know twenty four hour media. So mm. like, you know, once that became a thing, once ABC started running ABC twenty four, once you had other you know this constant need for content to fill the gap, to fill oxygen, to talk about something, you'll get a situation where. You know, a, a minister's speech that was knocked together twenty minutes before by some guy who probably doesn't like his, you know, doesn't like his job, mm. needs to get this out to keep his boss happy so he can keep paying his mortgage. Gets up and then they, and then you, it's, it's pulled apart to examine it for you know any hint of direction or suggestion, ad, ad infinitum, mm. and that's not necessarily helpful. But then also it's content. It's you know, it's more content for the machine. Yeah. I'm just thinking with with everything sort of concentrating and the resources disappearing, I'm I'm guessing the work that people like you do, who I suppose are prepared to go away and take that risk and invest more time and energy into finding a story like that, do you think that's where 
we're going, where it's going to be perhaps freelancers who are providing more of the in-depth content rather than, you know, it used, it used to be like the Greg Keltons of the world who would, you know, who was the, the former political editor for the advertiser, who was the kind of person who could build up 40 years of contacts and 40 years of knowledge and... Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there are still look, there are still some you know aspects of the big institutions that are capable of doing this. Like the ABC has managed to hold on to I think the seventy thirty report, and yeah. uh, what's the other one I'm forgetting now? Four Corners. Yep. Or is that gone? No, Four Corners okay, is there. Good, good. Yeah, because seven thirty <laughs> regionally disappeared, but they've maintained a national one, I think. Yeah, and, the, well, and there's a few other investigative units around the country. Like I think uh, yeah. I, I always forget her name. We'll get it wrong. Kate McClymont, Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, Kate McClymont. Yeah, I think is, that, so. is she the one who wrote the um, the book about Pell? Possibly. There's, I think she's 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 the one who literally stalks politicians to find out where they're going to be able to put you know thing. Like I'm, I'm guessing she has a murder board somewhere that in her office. Excellent. Yeah. So I mean, there are still those people operating. Yeah. And those have managed to maintain. But then the but then the actual stuff that, that the other stuff that you know the in depth feature writing that mm. um, and you, you're already seeing it. you're already seeing a kind of reserve army of freelancers out there providing this material yeah and you're seeing it in the creation of like you know the Saturday paper which is kind of which is no different to really an extension it's kind of it's no different to kind of a regional paper I mean it's backed by the Swartz real estate you know, yeah who's uh, it's backed by Robert, uh, Murray Swartz who's a real estate mogul yeah and it's family owned. Um, which has also been the classic case for a lot of these media operations. If you look at the history of media, newspapers were owned by very wealthy families who use it as either bragging rights or just as sources of information for their business activities. Yeah. Um, and that's, you can argue whether that's good or bad. But the point is that, you know, they, these publications are existing and they're pegging their future to this creation of in-depth feature reporting or investigative work. And over time, as people build the skills and share that knowledge, because journalists are also really bad at sharing their skills and knowledge because it's a very... It's, it's a, it's a brand-based industry mm-hmm. and they don't want to give away the thing that makes them special, essentially. Yeah, the yeah. tricks. It's the same in comedy. It's the same, it's the same in comedy. Which I actually think is a shame, right? Like, I mean, and it's... I And this is kind of... I guess where I come from, I don't see that kind of sense of comp- competition. I mean, there is an always there's always going to be an element of competition. Yeah, but at some point there needs to be an element of cooperation to be able to make it work because in an environment of scarce resources, in an environment where you've got X amount and like realistically, like daily. I mean, you know, there's 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 an argument where you know this kind of twenty four hour media cycle, this flood of content, this new social media, the instantaneous the. In- yeah, you know, the instantaneousness of how we communicate has meant that you need to um, you, you need to be the first person on it every single time. It's almost to the point where you don't need to anymore because it's yeah. just, it's it's everyone's got the same story anyway. Yeah. So are you going to do it better? And so and so you start to see like the incentives for you know to, to take more of those risks to do that more, you know, detailed reporting because that's going to get more attention than just producing this kind of base level stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe I'm idealistic I don't know maybe I'm still hopeful it's okay we can be good cop bad cop because I'm cynical as all fuck right <laughs> <laughs> there was that I, I sent you a blog article earlier on today about um, I saw it was shared by Dan Illich from um, Irrational Fear who's just one of the best political and news based comedians in the country but it was this really interesting blog about um, essentially breakfast television mm. and, and this rang true for me because the story was about a guy whose job working on a satirical TV show was to watch every single breakfast TV show every day. So it ended up being 12 hours of footage and he played it in fast forward. And, and he ended his up, brain. Yeah, he ended up cooking his brain and having a nervous breakdown. So it's kind of like a clockwork orange Ludovico technique but with, with, with the cash cow. Mm. And I used to have that with talkback. 
So it was my job to listen to talk back all day when I was a flack for a South Australian politician. I was just thinking, with when they're saying that you're only supposed to, like the way that these shows are designed, you're only supposed to catch nine minutes of it a day. How much, yeah. how much of this are we just burning forests just to keep our hands warm? It just seems... Pretty much, and that's because we've cut all the other content. We've cut the stuff that's you know, incredibly curated and developed and written, right? So you have to fill up with something. Yeah. And I think as that blog post said, and this was like, there was two things they said that rang, uh, that was rang true, and I can't remember for the life of me that second quote, which is really annoying right now. But the first thing was that you know opinions cheap. Mm. Everyone's got one. It's really easy to have an opinion about something. Yeah. All you need to do is just you know examine that down to infinite detail, and there you go. You've got a show for three hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's a podcast. <laughs> Just talk shit for long enough, and eventually you get it. Yeah, what's well, a podcast? Is a bit more though. It's this a is more, a bit more nuanced. It's, I don't, it's got it's got conversation. It's intimate. You know, it's getting to. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a cash cow. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. No, maybe I should get one. We'll get your Patreon. Yeah, fucking get a Patreon. I'll have my own cash cow. Mm-hmm. My friend, a friend of mine, actually, because um, I was having a, I was, I talk about the cash cow a little bit on stage because it's just. Oh, it just rankles with me. But he was saying that he works for a major telecommunications provider in the um, customer complaint section. And the number one complaint he gets is from people who can't get through to the cash cow because the phone plan they're on for pensioners, low-income people, all this kind of stuff, deliberately blocks premium content so that you can't you know, get on there and waste $100 in a day doing this. And people are ringing up furious that they're being protected from themselves and can't ring and put their name down for the cash cow 10 times a day because you know, every call costs you like $2 or something like that. Right. Right. So, they, so they're being filtered out. So but it's, it's, a, it's, you know, basically because it's a premium content and they're, mm. they're, so they're a pensioner, they're on the basic plan that gives them X number of calls and this much data and no premium thing and they, they get the phone for $10 a month. Yeah. They then try and ring the cash cow. They get the, they get the busy signal or the text gets rejected. Says you know check with your provider. That's the number one complaint he receives from people who have no money, who want them to unblock premium numbers so they can vote for the cash cow. Whatever the fuck you do with that dumb shit, just, just win stuff. Yeah, and like the you're, the odds are astronomical, and especially here in South Australia, I'm pretty sure you can't even actually enter. Like anything that's not in the Eastern Standard Time Zone. That's immediately invalid anyway. But then that's also uh, segueing at a different subject. And another pet frustration of mine mm. is that the, the uh, and this this goes back to my long running <laughs> obsession with Adelaide and South Australia and trying to understand this place, right? Because yeah. I've got a kind of dual love hate relationship with it. But you know, in an environment of scarce resources, those, you know, the, the, the dream of winning, you know, the cash cow, the lotto, the whatever, right? It's just. Is, is enough to keep driving you to keep doing it even though it's terribly bad for you even though you're going to pay more over your lifetime for this thing than you're ever going to win yeah well it's like they just had that review into poker machines and they want to have the the, the ones that accept notes now yeah and there was like all these submissions from experts who are just saying like that, you know whenever the ind- whenever the gambling industry says that they're helping consumers it means they're essentially finding a bigger hole to put money into and people are actually making their own personal submissions saying no no this would be better for my gaming because reasons like it's, it's fucking insane. It's like I can spend more, yeah. Why, why do people, what is the psychology behind people who are just so actively against their own best interest? And as a former drug addict, I, I have, you know, experience in this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, but you, but you can kind of get it right. Like you can kind of get the sense that like, you know, like whatever, like to use a gambling metaphor, the chips are down. Mm. You know, you're, you're playing like the pokies at least offer you a bit of distraction. And like the, the, we all know those machines are literally rigged to hack your brain. Oh, yeah. 
you know? Yeah. And so, and they're the only thing that offers the promise of some money. And even if you walk in there and put a dollar on the machine and you win something like hundred bucks back, it's going to make you more likely. But oh yeah, well I won once, I might as well win it and play again. Yeah. And that's how they hook you in. And it's just, it's the same. It's but it's it's it's, the, it's something. It's a kind of you can almost see it as like a natural product of any kind of environment where resources are scarce, right? Because let's face it. This is South Australia. We're at the end of the Murray-Darling River system. We account for six percent of GDP. Mm. We uh, yeah, unemployment has been like holding stable at what seven percent yeah. or thereabouts is floating up and down. And yeah. there are pockets of huge unemployment elsewhere. Like you go to Elizabeth; it's one in three people. Yeah, in, at the center, right? So like, and then so what you have is a situation where people will have to compete over the same number of resources, which gets rid of your empathy and also means that if you've got a potential to win something, to get that little bit of cash, to get rich quick. Mm. You know, think about what the things you can do with that. Yeah, you get out. Yeah, you get out. It's mm. going to fix all your problems. Yeah. You know? Man, I was talking to some friends about this because the Fringe Festival is coming up and that's always, for people of my level, that's always like, oh, I'm going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, well, that's a gamble again, right? It's the, like, yeah, yeah. You, know, you keep doing it because that's the... you got to you got to be in it to win it. Yeah, you got to be part of it. you got to play the game. Yeah, I might get a jet ski or a schnitzel. So <laughs> you got to keep doing it. But we're looking at the other shows. Like, So there's, you know, of course, these... Um, various ticketing sites that will offer complimentary tickets and all this kind of stuff to drive people through. So the idea being that, you know, one person in a, in a friendship cohort gets two free tickets and their friends are like, oh, fuck, I want to come to that. So they'll then go and buy tickets. So that's, you know, it's that sort of wedge, wedge under the door kind of marketing sort of idea. And we're looking at the people that are normally on there. They're shows of my caliber, you know, like you can't get anyone on there. Steve Martin and Martin Short are now on there. They're now half price. You two have had to move their their actual arena to a smaller configuration because they can't sell enough tickets. What the fuck is going on when you two can't shift tickets? Yeah, it's the problem. But and this is, we are we are a bee's dick from a recession here. Uh, well, but, but this is in some ways we've already had kind of pockets of localized recession, right? So yeah. this is just the norm for us. Like, yeah, again, you know, there was a reason. You know, Elizabeth's got one in three, you know, thirty three percent unemployment rate, so one in three people mm. at its heart, like. That's a recession. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but this stuff is localized. So some, and this is kind of goes back to, you know, the stuff that you and I were working on, you know, a few years back is that when you have like the, you know, all this, the, the conversation we're actually having when we talk about Holden and factories and all this kind of losing, you know, media and stuff is the yeah. fact that we've been grappling with some environmental scarce resources. And some of us have been grappling harder than others because some, for some of us, everything's great. Life is the same. What's to worry about? Cause you don't yeah. see it every day. Um, but and then yeah and then we've tried to solve it through things like and I think yeah, there's a you know Jessica Alice quote you know coined the phrase the festival industrial complex which is which is defines Adelaide's you know festival economy we have a festival nearly every month now because yeah you know partying is supposed to you know help you know build the economy tourism wine all that's all that all that good stuff yeah but also what you're creating in that sense what you're also creating is a service economy that's inherently unstable and rewards people who you know, who know how to smile even when they're angry. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like if you're not that, I mean, respectfully, if, you, if you're not that bright, yeah. if, you, if you're not like, you know, your typical, if, if you're not happy all the time, if you're not whatever else, like it's, it's not, it's not something where you excel at. There's no stability of work. It's no, you know, predictable income. There's no, you know, there's no future you can see for yourself that you can predict in five years time. Yeah. You're thinking about tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. And so, I mean, 
And so you, when you when you factor that into the sense, like, and you go, and that makes it much harder for anyone to do anything. So like you're talking about this in the comedy circuit, right? Like one of the things I've been working on as a project to do with, um, and this is you know quietly, is it's something I stumbled on when I was doing the Holden book, right? So when you had those factories operating, you had money. You, know, mm. if, you, know, if, you can talk about the you know the crappiness of the work. You can talk about all the byproducts or whatever, whatever, right? But people had money, and so what do these people do? They all bought instruments and they made music. And there was a period for a good fifteen years where Elizabeth was 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 a generator for you know for cutting edge music in this country yeah. and helped reshape. And you know, which over time, over that you know, you know say ten to ten year period, which it started from you know, your original church youth groups up to like the Maiponga you know, Music Festival, you had these people help reshape the way Australian music sounded and was played, right? Mm. But one guy I spoke to when I did the original story on this was, he just said, that, well, look, the factory paid for our guitar strings. Yeah. And so like, you know, and so when you, but now they're gone. Now that stability of employment's gone. Yeah. Now that, you know, now we have more insecure work. So who's buying tickets to the shows? Exactly. No, yeah. who's who's and these are the questions I'm continually grappling with every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I because I, I work in the western suburbs in my day job, and I'm I'm particularly attuned to what the festival economy does because essentially there's no way to break out of it as a participant. You have to follow it around Australia if you want to make a living. You have to tour. Yeah, unless you're the kind of person who's on TV or radio, you literally have to follow the circus around. Mm. Uh, it's not something I particularly want to do. It's it's stressful. It's a huge risk. But I didn't realise just how badly it affects people. Like I always knew there was that impact on the bricks and mortar businesses around the Adelaide CBD. You know, so like the the Fringe Festival comes in or the Clipsal 500 comes in or whatever they're calling it these days. And, you know, certain businesses really do it tough mm. for about a month. So I'm way out west, mm. way past where any foot traffic or anything for that would go. And I was talking to businesses out there and they're saying, yeah, like Mad March, we may as well close. Like we just have a huge downturn in trade. Yeah, but even in, even within the city environment, and like there was, I mean, I was a French bartender for many years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, you right. Know, I saw the other side of it, you know, when you're <laughs> like, and uh, that's, that was a fun time. But like, I mean, even watching the conversation change around that for a lot of um, for a lot of people who own the venues and who own the bars, right? Like it went because the the argument amongst that crowd is that the fringe went from being something that was you know the outsiders, you know, the the fringe is in the name, right? The people that yeah. couldn't get into the Adelaide Festival, and the idea was it was there to give you your start, you know. Hmm. Um, and then so, and, and slowly they've they've seen this event evolve, and the marker they usually place is when you know the the show rides appear in the fringe garden. Yeah. At that point, you, at that point, something changed, and you can ask like five different people and get five different answers about what that is. Mm. But what? The, but even with like the foot tracker, the concentration of people into specific areas, and this, the, the larger you know, venues first, the Fringe Garden, um, then there's the Royal Croquet, Royal Croquet Club. Mm-hmm. God, I'm bad at language tonight. Um, and then there's a third place now. I forget. So there's Gluttony as well, which yeah. is across from the Garden, RCC, and then there's also. RCC Fringe, I think. Mm. And now all the councils are jumping on board it too. And they're, they're giving you like a $200 discount off your Fringe registration if you go and do a show with them. 
Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's trying to get a cut now. But, yeah. But then how that applies, but then, so as you see the kind of almost vertical integration of these venues, it cuts out the smaller venues who then get really frustrated because it's like, well, we're yeah. selling less tickets than ever before. Yeah. And, but then again, you know, if you want to put a cause on it, that's hard because is it the fact that people just don't have enough money to spend or, you know, not buying this? Or is it the fact that they're not being advertised enough? Or is it the fact that you've vertically, vertically integrated all these venues and yeah. yes, they're hoovering up the audiences? It's interesting. I talked to a few people back when the, the I forget which venue it was. It might have been RCC or it might have been The Garden or one of the others where there was a caveat on your, on entry. You had to have a ticket to a show. So in order to get into this place, which was just a giant cocaine party basically, you had to have a ticket to a show. So all these acts were like selling out their seasons but then coming into their night and performing to a half full room and going, this doesn't make any sense. I've sold out every single ticket tonight. It's people literally just wanting to go into the venue itself party there, talk to girls, talk to fellas, do whatever they want, and fuck, you know, just give me a ticket to whatever show and, that you is. You know, all power to them. Like, that's... Exactly. You know, that's, that's living. Yeah, but, like, but it's creating it's creating a counterculture to the counterculture. Yeah. And it's really interesting. And, of course, that's a problem I'd love to have because I play empty rooms for free at the moment. <laughs> so it's a problem I'd love to have. But it's just an interesting way that the, the Fringe went from being a very fringy arts festival to being quite mainstream but also still very artsy. I think that's the critique from uh, from a lot of people is that it's I mean and you know if you ask around it's the idea that there's it's not about the art anymore it's about the party yeah and like if you boil it down to that that makes much that, that makes it the issue much more clearer yeah um, how you address that I don't know <laughs> yeah I don't know either because you know what it brings a lot of people out and, you know somebody seems to make money yeah it, it, it keeps happening so yeah <laughs> someone's doing well I don't think like with the, the the regional venues jumping on board like this this coming festival season I'm thinking about going and maybe doing Mount Gambia and a few other places that are just far enough to kind of you know, maybe I'll be able to get something in these other little places where you're not kind of cannibalizing mm. your own small market. Well, and also, I mean, I feel like, I mean, you know, when I in in the Riverland, like, I mean, there was a there was a huge arts culture, and people do go to shows and do go out to support stuff, which yeah. is which is great for that kind of loyalty. And like, that's yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean you, you, I mean, and to be honest with you, you're probably going to be doing better out in a regional area than you are in the. And that's, that's the way I'm starting to look at it. A few years ago when they first started doing this where they were actually offering incentives for artists to go and do shows regionally, and I say that with full recognition that Salisbury isn't regional. It's just, it's, a, it's an outer suburb. <laughs> anyway. Um, look, I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. <laughs> yeah. So Salisbury actually had this really great idea. They'd pay half your festival registration. All you had to do was come out and do a show for them. Mm. And they had just one or two they really didn't mind. And I went out there and met with them and they were like really lovely and they really had their shit together. Mm. They'd created a little space called the Salisbury Secret Garden, which was going to be part of their library. And I'm walking around just going, this is actually going to be magical and I'm really glad I'm doing this. And they showed me this little venue. It held 15 people. Mm. I'm like, that's me. Mm. I can't pull more than that on a good night. And here, you know, I'll maybe just get some, you know, curiosity. So 15 is a good number for me. It was at the back of a library. And the show I was doing was really political. So it was like, okay, you know, it's going to work in a place where there's books. Mm-hmm. You know, so let's do it. Signed up. And then three months later, the Fringe Festival Guide comes out. And I've been moved to the Eureka Hotel into the front bar. And I'm like, oh, fucking hang on. Oh, that's a tough crowd. That's a tough. <laughs> and I'd never been there before, but I'd heard, I knew of its reputation. Mm. So I walk down there, well, from the train station, it's not far, and the doors open up and it's a completely concrete pub. There's no carpet. Mm. It's a f- concrete front bar so they can fucking hose the place out, <laughs> right? There's a stage, but it's not a stage. It's basically a corner where you can keep some instruments and stuff like that and maybe someone who 
I don't know, is fucking handy with their fists, can do some acoustic covers on a Friday night. They have got a boxing bag in the front bar, which has been taped up. And I just said to them, why is there a boxing bag here? And she goes, oh, that's the vent bag. I was like, what? And she says, yeah, when people are going to get in a fight, they go over there and vent and that. But we had to tape it up because someone knifed it. Like, okay. Mm. I'm not sure if I want to perform here. That, to be honest with you, I would have the, I would have the reverse reaction. I'd be like, this is great. <laughs> yeah. I, to, you know, also, the convenient get out of jail card for me was that I had not sold a single ticket that day. Uh, they also had no PA and asked me if I could bring a microphone. Well, yeah. I mean, look, to be honest with you, if I was going to go to the Eureka Stockade for a comedy show, it's not my... It's gonna be. It's it's the kind of place where Chopper used to play. <laughs> I got asked. I would probably pull a crowd. Like. He would. He would have killed it. Yeah. I got asked to support Chopper in Port Wakefield. Nice. Yeah. They how, said how. So basically, that guy. You know, like the idea behind all these these traveling, you know, sort of storytellers and yarn spinners is you just want some person who's not well known, who's probably not great but is good enough to take that first wave of bullets so that you can then walk yeah, up the beach. To warm people up and to, is, is a hype man, basically. Hype man, basically, yeah. yeah. So uh, they must have gone through about 20 locals and everyone's like, fuck that. I'm not going to go open for fucking Chopper in Port Wakefield, right? Uh-huh. The, the sweetener was, it was $50 and they could give me a lift <laughs> to the venue, <laughs> no guarantee about back. Brutal. I was like, fuck that come on chopper what are you doing <laughs> who's organizing it uh a, a local guy who thankfully doesn't organize too many more gigs oh anymore. yeah i was gonna say cause, i mean that's a i mean if, if, if they're trying to lowball you at, at, straight out of the gate that's a bit brutal yeah this guy used to busk not busk he used to spruik in rundle mall okay he was one of those guys <laughs> oh is he the guy with the hair yeah that guy yeah that guy <laughs> Yeah. You'll beep that name out? Or? I'm going to beep that name out, yeah. <laughs> I've never met the guy. Apparently, he's really nice, but that was yeah. a fucking weird conversation to yeah, have I, with a stranger. Especially seeing as it was like really hard selling it. He's like, so I've got you a gig. He's like, I don't know who you are, man. Sweet. Okay. Got you a gig at Port Wayfield opening for Chopper. 50 bucks. Yes. Yeah, sure. 50 bucks okay. and a lift. <laughs> wow. No, thank you. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So, how did you get your start in journalism? Uh, there were no jobs. There were no jobs. Yeah. So I graduated. Well, so like I, like I guess I I filled out the form wrong. Got to, got to the degree, did the degree for a while, which was great. You know, I had a lot of fun. Um, and I was really, I guess one of the pinnacle moments was when I knew I wanted to do it was I, I got a, the, the uni were like, hey, we're throwing some money because the, the university like to send people overseas to say that we send people overseas, right? Yeah. So they offer all these kind of like weird scholarship grants that a lot of people never apply for because they never know where to look on the website. All right. And I was like, oh, sweet. They want me to go work for free for some, you know, over in the US for two months. And so Lonely Planet, I, I, I pitched to go intern at Lonely Planet, the publishing department there for yeah. two days. Okay. At the same time, I was actually technically in breach of my visa conditions in the US. Yeah. But um, I also hustled a gig working three days a week for the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Okay. And so, and again, the US is a very different print culture to us and so they have a thing called the alt weeklies yep. they started out in the in the 1960s from the hip from basically a bunch of hippies in every city and every in nearly every state in the country set up these alternative weekly magazines they were kind of halfway between a newspaper and a magazine yeah and so they they could be very wild yeah <laughs> um and the San Francisco Bay Guardian was one of them, and it was on the verge of dying. Like yeah, it was housed in this big warehouse at the end of Mississippi Street in the in Mission District in San Francisco. And I'd get the train from, like, you get the train from where I was staying, you know, uh, through Oakland, um, and get to the, you know, and walk down through this neighborhood where there's like, you know, and 
it's it's a completely different world to what you're used to. And I was just really fucking young at the time. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. But, and I'd walk the whole street, the whole length. Um, and you'd get there and the whole place was dark. Most of the lights were off. There's cubicles full of computer equipment just holding stuff. And I'd sat there um, and I'd do whatever, you know, whatever it is, the task they'd given me. Um, and they had me working on actual projects because like they had no staff. So I was yeah. like, sweet. And so the first story I probably ever published in any kind of official capacity was through them. And it was, a, like, I was talking to a, and it's, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but at the end of it, like I published it and it was, at, once it got published, I knew like, this is it. This is what I want to do, right? Yeah. I, I love this. I love talking to people and involved me going down to the Tenderloin, which is the last ghetto left in San Francisco. It's a hugely, it's, it's a whole other world. It's not, there's nothing, there's no comparable experience in Australia. Right. Um, it's, you know, if, if you, it's the kind of place where people sell crack literally at three in the, three, 3 p.m. in the afternoon on street corners, even though there's a cop car like 200 meters down on the next block. Wow. And then, you know, the guy who owns the, um, corner deli which is clearly up to no good walks out and stares at you and go past because you're not buying crack and they know you, you know something's weird so like you know it's it's a really intense thing to be but so like just having that experience was like this is it this is what i want to do yeah so i came back finished the degree graduated and the year i graduated there was just no no work going none not not, not even regional areas so when was this uh 2008 2009 ish yeah okay so i mean don't don't quote me. <laughs> no, because I'm, I'm trying to remember the first. I think I remember the first time I saw your name in print. Probably much later than that. Because I no, uh, it would have been the I reckon it would have been around then the trip around Salisbury. Oh, that was a bit a bit later than that. So what okay. happened? So before I before I, anything, right? So I was yes, yeah, so I was here. I was here in Adelaide, and I remember like, uh, yeah, and I remember sitting there thinking like, okay, well, well you know, time to get a job now. I want to pay stuff, and I've been I, was, I moved out of home. Yeah. So years before, so I was kind of, you know, had to pay bills. Um, and then the guy, a friend of mine got the last cadetship offered at the ABC for a number of years. Wow. So he was like, there was something ridiculous, like a couple hundred, you know, potentially thousand applicants in this position. He got it. Wow. Rolls in. Year after, nothing. They were only accepting internal candidates. At the same time, there was no job adverts, nothing going. And I was like, all right, well, this is, you know, and I, yeah, at the time I was ambitious and arrogant enough to say kind of, screw it, I'm going to try it anyway. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, it's, I like, learned about freelancing, set myself up, tried to sell stuff to people, made every single mistake possible because I had no, no no clue. Usually when you go, when you're freelancing, as I'm sure you know, it's like you, you've worked at a place for some time, understand editorial culture, whatever else. Yeah. So I had to learn that from scratch with no one to be like, hey. Well, you had to teach yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so my first, and I was, I also, I mean, I also applied for a job at The Guardian didn't deserve it totally unqualified you know like shouldn't you know shouldn't have like gone for it but i made it to an interview round which wow. is like um, you know I'm, I'm, which must be a testament to the other candidates available but like i uh, you know uh, and like i quite rightly didn't get the job but i'm forever grateful to uh lee glendanning who was the editor at the time yep she just said look i mean if you're, you're, you're freelancing you want to you want to do some work for us i'm happy to throw you some work and she gave me a couple of stories yeah and just off the back of those stories because like i was living off of centrelink at the time so like just off the back of those stories I was, that gave me the credibility then to roll into the next thing which then to roll into the next thing and i guess the um the story you're 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 thinking about the first the role around Elizabeth was uh, after I like there was two other things happened then so I was kind of you know trying to hustle trying to work out well what do I do with my you know like how do, how do I keep this thing going now yeah um, and I got contact uh, yeah and the first thing was I managed to you know, start getting published by Al Jazeera of all places that's right you did too 
it was amazing and that was it was like so i had a friend who was interning or, or working or something in malaysia and i hit up and i hit up them who gave me their boss and then i like like hustled my way into like saying hey i'm a freelance i'm looking to speak to your online team mm. they then gave me the email for the entire online team and which which i promptly emailed mm. spammed the entire digital team <laughs> um and eventually got like there was there was like the news editor and various and various other people responded yeah. um but the the big boss guy called henrik yeah uh Hit me, hit me an email and said, "Look, just talk to me." Sent, you guys sent him my resume and whatever else, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give you a run." Um, and that was the best money I've ever made as a freelancer because at the time, the Australian dollar they were paying in Australian uh, US dollars. All oh, right, and the conversion rate was well in our favor. Yeah, so that was fantastic. Um, so I was like, "This is," and so, and so that then taught me that then gave me an opportunity to kind of develop basically to kind yeah. of like a little bit of money to sustain myself while i was trying to put together these features for an organization that clearly annoyed you about yeah. me or australia um and that was and so and and then at the, and then around that time i started to get my first stories and vice because i got hit up by an editor there saying hey look do you want to do some stuff for us and i was like yes great so i did the elizabeth story for instance that's where i saw that i got into a investigative journalism mentorship program through kill your darlings which was you know uh, a small know-nothing like a very small lit journal out of Melbourne who are great by the way everyone should totally check them out yeah um, and that was mentored by a guy called Gideon Haig who uh, did End of the Road the book yeah so and I was like one of three people who got into that best application I've written for anything in my life <laughs> I have you know and it just so happened he had published the book about the car industry like literally a month after I put it in that application so you know yeah. I made it across the line um, you know, and it's, it's, and it's interesting kind of looking back on that because some people describe journalism like running across a series, like right, like it was described on Twitter as running across a series of burning bridges, mm. um, and that's exactly what it's like. Which is why it's really frustrating now for both me and other people. If I go back and talk to people and say like, well, yeah, especially young, you know, journalists, you want to get into it. If, if I say like, the, I, I can't say this is how you do it because those avenues don't exist anymore. Yeah. They've all been defunded. They're all small. They're long, you know, they, they weren't continued or like the organization has moved elsewhere. Um, and this goes back to what we're saying at the start, that kind of loss of you know, regional media, that loss of um, institutional media and the lack of access that has to people like, I guess, you, know, you and me who come from places that are kind of very working class, regional in your case, and very working class, out of suburban, I'll be specific, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, environments in the northern suburbs. Eh? Yeah. Like that... You know those opportunities. Like, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, we ha we had a chance to do it, right? Yeah. And I guess at this point in my like, I guess you can call it a career. Is that is that okay? I don't. You've like, got three fucking <laughs> books, dickhead. Yes, you've got a career. Sweet. All You're right. about to have four. We're about to have four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, at that point, it's like my, my concern now is like, we're making sure that other people have those same opportunities, right? Because you want the next. You know the next John Brooks or the next Royce Kermelovs, you know, male or female, to come up and have the same opportunities. You know, yeah. I think that's the question. Like, so you know, it's interesting because I I very much was in like when I was saying at the start about how I went to these newsrooms like in the in the bush that had no resources. So I essentially didn't have a cadetship. I went straight from university, which taught me nothing, to being a senior journalist in a town with very complex problems that needed the attention of a really seasoned and, you know, wise journalist. And they got some kid who just wanted to, like, break the dirtiest news they could to get a job back with News Limited in Adelaide so they could progress their career, inverted commas. That's weird. So, like, yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering about how you – how do you apprentice when there's no one to mentor you? Well, and this is kind of – and I actually like 
and and looking back, I think about it, and I think like, geez, like I I would not recommend to anyone to, to kind of be yeah freelance to be to, to to go straight out of uni to be a freelancer because it's hard. Yeah. But then also, I don't see another way. I don't think there is another way anymore. Yeah, and so I mean, you have to get that experience. You have to make that effort, and also like sometimes you just have to kind of kick in the door and take it because like. But then you have to set the door for the right reasons. Yeah. And so now I try to make a point, like occasionally I get an enterprising young, you know, wannabe journalist in, in some form, hit me up and say, hey, you got time for a coffee? And I always make time for a coffee, right? Because yeah. like, you know, like there was no one making time, you know, making time to have coffee with me. So I always say, well, here's what I learned. Here's straight up. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll be, have a much easier time. Think, you know, because um, because that's important. And that's the only way you can kind of, go about it i guess yeah we had a very interesting induction in and I, I did hang a lot of shit on the journalism degree that i did it it was in its declining years when i was there and i probably had something to do with that i think i definitely lowered the standards but the interesting thing about that was and to this day still is there was always that pocket of people who see journalism as a path to celebrity mm. And I've never understood that. But the, those people don't do well. I mean, my, my finding, people who, the people who do the best are the ones who do the work. Yeah, the, the, the real people who are just out there to, to break news and they're, they're in it for the love of a story and also, you know, because, you know, a lot of the time they're, you know, they've got this deeply human connection that yeah. makes them good at their job. But it was interesting because on the first day of the course, they sat us down and they gave us the talk, which was – Within seven years, 90% of you here won't be, won't be working as journalists. You'll have left. Brutal. Yeah. Um, you know, they said most of you will have, have at one point had a stress-related incident at work where you've had to take time off. Uh, some of you are going to develop drinking and substance abuse problems. Some of you are going to develop mental illness and probably one in this room will commit suicide. And we're like, Jesus fucking Christ, <laughs> what are we doing? And then like this girl basically stands up and I, yeah, I, I say that, you know, that sounded a little bit too derisive, this girl. No, but she was. She was this, this very pretty young thing. It was like probably 17, just stood up. She's like, I just want to read the weather and just fucking left. Oh. I'm like, wow. wow. Fuck. Oh, okay. So yeah, well, dropped out that day. But it's funny because I mean, the I mean, from what I hear from the course now, I mean, the guy, uh, there's a guy Ben Stubbs, the guy I'm talking to uh, next week for an event actually. So this is kind of a bit nep- nep- nepotistic. No, that's not the right <laughs> word. No, go for it. Yeah, but, uh, South Australia. Any any rope you can get to pull yourself <laughs> up. Yeah. So so Ben Stubbs is, was came from. He's a travel writer. Came from Sydney to you know, to move to Adelaide. But he now teaches the he teaches a lot of uh, like a long form feature writing. Yep. So w- I guess what I see happening is like. If you, if you get to sum up is that you kind of like there's, there's been like an apocalypse you yeah. know and now we're kind of in the process of working out how to survive in this Mad Max environment <laughs> and so I see value in teaching people how to do this long because like this long form stuff I see those resources kind of being gathered together and people actually making the effort to say well this is how it's done and people who do care and do, are, are trying and I think the, yeah and I think that's a good thing that's a positive development right because if you do because like to say right I don't know how you do how you get into this business but freelancing is probably one way of doing it. Mm. And if you do, you need a, you're, you're basically operating as, you know, you need to say, well, as, as an editor once said to me, what makes you different? Why should I publish you and not someone else? Yeah. And if, once you answer that question, you're, uh, you're good to go. <laughs> once, once you overcome that incredible existential hurdle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the adversity of it, right? <laughs> if, if you stop whenever someone tells you no, I mean, you're not going to be a great journalist. Like, no, you're not. You're not going to be a great anything. Mm. Yeah, cool, man. Um, we'll have to round it up in just a sec, but um, anything you want to plug? You've got another book coming out? Yeah, so I've got another book coming out next year. I mean, it's a bit long way off, but next year through UQP. Um, tentative title at the moment is Just Money, likely to change, but you know, 
yep. watch the space. Uh, meanwhile, next week I'll be actually talking to uh, the aforementioned Ben Stubbs about his book about South Australia, The Crow Eaters. Uh, r- really good book, really good study of us. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the Dimmix, I think 6 p.m. next Thursday. Yep. So by the time this goes to air, it'll probably be... It'll be Sunday. It'll be Sunday, great. It's gone Sunday morning. Sweet. So I have that to look forward to if I say something career-killing. Uh, <laughs> But uh, what else? I mean, that's pretty much it at this point. Uh, well, where can people follow you on social media? Oh, yeah. I've got a, I've got a Twitter handle. You can find me on Twitter. It's at uh, RoyceRK2. I'll, I'll also link it in the... Yeah. I mean, we can link it in. It's probably more accurate than probably. me. It's, look, it's late on a Friday, man. What are, yeah. like, it's, what, what are we doing? <laughs> um, but, you know, tw- Twitter's the main one at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I tend to, you know, share my stuff and whatever through there. Um, Open DMs for news tips? Yeah. Open DMs for news tips. Hit me up on Wicker if it's sensitive. Buy my books. You know, keep me in business. Yeah, yours. You've got one of the few books in an airport that uh, that actually people should buy. Absolutely. Well, yeah, your words, <laughs> and I, I appreciate their recommendation. Well, I'll tell you. I just I'll leave it on this because I used to have a. I tried a joke out that never worked because you know people just you know think I'm really smug and I say that you know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover unless that cover's got Shane Warne on it. <laughs> And you know that that's a book for people that don't read. I should I shouldn't laugh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's fucking true, man. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, yeah, man. I'm going to press stop now because fuck editing. <laughs>